Greetings, funk lads and folk ladies. Welcome to Funklore, where I, your host Justin, will recount to you some lovely fairy tales in a ridiculous fashion. How's your week been? My friends, good? I hope it's been good. I, I hope you didn't burn down a castle to get rid of a cat, or uh, use a cannon to harvest corn, like our island friends in the last episode. Uh, welcome to episode three. I'm happy to be here. Three is a really common number in these stories, so the fact that I've made it this far bodes well, or so I'd like to think. It's going to be a bit of a longer one today, so bear with me, because there are some pretty interesting topics I'm going to touch on. For this lovely third episode, let's talk about another story you've likely heard, Rumpelstiltskin. That's right, we're going to talk about the weird little dwarf demon goblin guy that likes to make gold from straw and take people's babies. Now, the name didn't change much from its original form, Rumpelstiltskin. The name itself actually means little rattlestilt, and stilt, in this context, is like a beam or post that is part of a structure. Certain goblins and ghosts were called rumpelstilts or rumpelgeists, uh, which is actually partially where we get the term poltergeist. But all these terms referred to sneaky little supernatural monsters who would shake, rattle, and roll, and generally make all sorts of ruckus. Voila, Rumpelstiltskin. So his name establishes him as somewhat of a troublemaker right off the bat. Unfortunately, no one knows Rumpy's name in the beginning of the story, which is kind of the whole point. Speaking of, let's jump right in. Once upon a time, there was a poor miller with a very beautiful daughter. For some unmentioned reason, the miller had to go and speak with the king of the country. I don't know, maybe he'd been trying to reach the king regarding his carriage's extended warranty. No matter the reason, the miller had an audience with the king, and he wanted to make each moment count while in the presence of royalty. So he told an outrageous lie. Like, not even believable, really. Oh, hey. Uh, by the way, Mr. King, my daughter, she can spin straw into gold. <laughs> uh, he didn't start with, oh, hey, I have a beautiful daughter. He didn't say, my daughter is super kind, or my daughter is incredible at math. He didn't even tell a cool lie, like, my daughter can turn anything to gold by touching it, and also she can fly and shoot lasers out of her hands. Now he went with, you know the super tedious thing that people have to do to make string or yarn out of plants? Yeah, well, if my daughter wants to, she can make straw into gold like that. If the king had any common sense, he could have seen straight through this miller's paper-thin logic. Oh yeah? Well, if your daughter can make gold out of straw, why are you so poor? Riddle me that, peasant. Ah, uh, but luckily for the miller, and unluckily for his daughter, the king took him at his word and was amazed by the promised talent of this beautiful girl. Deciding that this was a talent worthy of exploitation, he commanded that the miller should bring his daughter to the palace the next day. Well, the miller apparently decided to double down on his ridiculous lie, because the next day he brought his daughter to the palace and dropped her off. Uh, good luck with the situation that I put you in. Hopefully you don't get killed because of a choice that I made that you have no control over. Bye! <laughs> and then the miller just rides on out of the story, never to be heard from again. Father of the Year The king graciously takes the miller's daughter into his castle and sets her inside a room filled with straw and a tiny spinning wheel in a corner. I'd like to imagine that the exchange went a little like this. Uh, so, Mr. King, before we start... Oh, please, no. Mr. King was my father. Please, call me Your Highness. Um, okay. Your Highness, I should tell you that I can't actually... Well, here we are, look at this room, and all this straw that will soon be gold. For me! See, actually, I... Yep, you've got until tomorrow morning to spin this straw into gold or you die. I can't... Wait, pardon me, I die? Well, yes, if you can't do it, I'll have you executed. Now, what were you saying? You can't, uh, something? Uh, I, uh, I can't wait to get started. 
That's the spirit. Now get to work so that I don't have to kill you. <laughs> With that, the king locked the miller's daughter in the room and went on his merry way. Understandably, the miller's daughter was just a tad bit upset by this new arrangement. She began to cry, wondering how on earth she was supposed to accomplish such an impossible task. Enter Tiny Dwarf Goblin Man. The text actually refers to him as a mannequin, spelled M-A-N-N-I-K-I-N, which is just another word for a small person, actually. So you can expect me to refer to my future children as mannequins, which will most definitely confuse anyone listening. Oh, I took the mannequins to the park. I don't feed my mannequins candy after 5 p.m. They get too hyper. My mannequins have been acting out recently, etc. It isn't a horror movie, but it sounds like one. Anywho, back to our little man friend. The little man opens up the door and waltzes into the room, apparently intrigued by the sound of the weeping. So I'm going to pause here for a second again, because this feels a little bit odd. Each time I've heard this tale in the past, I've been under the impression that at this part of the story, the little man just appears in the room by magic, like he teleports or something. But having him walk through the door seems even weirder somehow. Like, does this guy just work in the castle? Was he just happening to wander around nearby? How did he get in? Does he just go looking through castles for crying women? There are so many questions that I need answers to. Unfortunately, I don't get any of those answers. Anyway, our fun-sized friend enters the room, hearing the cries of the poor Miller's daughter, and politely asks her what's wrong. Good evening, Mistress Miller. Why are you crying so? Alas, answered the girl, I have to spin straw into gold, and I do not know how to do it. By sheer luck, the ability to completely rearrange the atomic structure of straw into gold is something that falls in the little man's wheelhouse. Convenient. Our pipsqueak pal counters with this. Okay, sure. I can do that for you. Easy peasy. I'll just need something in return. Capitalism, baby! The girl offers her necklace as a reward for his help, and the little man accepts. Immediately, he sets to work. After three turns of the wheel, the reel was filled with gold, so the diminutive devil replaced it with another. Three more turns, another full reel, and so on and so forth it went throughout the night. By daybreak, the king arrived, and to his amazement, the room was filled with perfectly spun gold. Huzzah! Though he was incredibly pleased with this, it also made him incredibly greedy, and he took the miller's daughter to an even larger room filled with straw. Once there, he very predictably commanded that she spin all the straw to gold by the next morning or be put to death. I don't understand the importance of having it all done in one night. Like, if she was only able to spin half the straw into gold over the course of 12 hours, that's, that's just a useless skill. Well, sorry, this is a miracle of science and by all accounts shouldn't even be possible, but you just weren't fast enough. So, sorry, time to die. Regardless, the king clearly was bigger on greed than he was on common sense, so he left the girl locked in the room once again. Unsure of what else to do, the miller's daughter again began to cry. Hey, it worked last time, right? May as well. Well, sure enough, the compact counterfeiter once again snuck into the room and once again offered to spin the straw into gold. And my parents told me that whining never got me anything. Huh. In exchange for his help this time, the young lady offered the dwarf the ring from her finger, which he accepted. But why? Okay, so this guy clearly has no want for material wealth, because he can quickly make millions of dollars worth of gold from straw. Why does he want a ring or a necklace? The world may never know. Probably some weird little troll man witchcraft. Once again, the mischievous man-child, mysteriously managing a mastery of metals, magically manages to make a myriad of massive mountains of money out of meager manger materials. Marvelous. When the morning came, the king was again delighted to see that the room is now filled with gold rather than straw. Finally, he was satisfied. Psych! 
He wanted more gold, like an old prospector. There's gold in them, the hills. Except the hills, in this case, are just pieces of straw. Again, he took the miller's daughter to an even larger room filled with straw, and commanded her to use the spinning wheel to turn it into gold. From what I can tell, he didn't threaten her life this time, though I'm sure it was implied. What he did do, however, was promise that, should the girl be successful in spinning all of the straw into gold, he would make her his wife. Which, to me, sounds like a thinly veiled excuse to keep her as his gold-making slave forever, but hey, I'm not there, so I can't really warn her. His next thoughts, written in the story, only further support my theory. He reasoned that, even though she was just a miller's daughter, there could be no richer woman for him. Again, seems like a scam, but there's nothing I can do about it. Predictably, nary a second had passed after the king left the room when our maiden's height-challenged hero arrived once again. Hey, what will you give me if I spin all this straw into gold? Straight to the point. I can respect that. However, the miller's daughter was distraught as she had run out of things valuable enough to give the little man. I'm sorry, but I don't have anything left to give. Hmm, how about this completely random scenario? If you and the king get married, and if you have a child, I get to take that child. Just the first one, not all of them. I'm not an animal. The miller's daughter didn't really see any other options at this point, and she kind of doubted that the king would actually marry her anyway, so she agreed to this stipulation. Personally, I think she could have just tried a little harder to avoid this. The first two times, Homeboy just accepted the first thing she offered him. She could have just, like, torn off a piece of her dress and been like, I'll give you this strip of cloth, or, like, picked up something off the ground. Oh, I'll give you my favorite pebble I've ever seen in this room. It might not have worked, but also what if it did? Worth a shot. Whatever. So, having struck his deal, the Lilliputian laborer spun the wheel, quickly turning the farm animal fodder into lustrous gold for a third time. When the morning came, the king arrived and saw that the whole room was again filled with gold. True to his word, he married the miller's daughter and she became the queen. And apparently after this, the king didn't keep making her spin straw into gold, so what was that all about? He marries her for this one purpose and then just forgets about it? Okay, whatever. A year after the wedding, the queen gave birth to a beautiful child and completely forgot about her final deal with the dwarf. Not sure how one forgets such an occurrence, but she'd clearly had an eventful year. Maybe she had a bunch of interactions with magical little people after that, and it all blended together. Though the queen had forgotten the deal, our bite-sized buddy had not. The text says that suddenly he came into her room and said, Now, give me what is promised. Coming through the door again? Seriously, I'm not the only one that thinks this is weirder than appearing in a puff of smoke. This guy just wanders around the castle until he feels he needs to make an entrance, and then he just shows up at the most convenient times. What are the guards doing? You'd think with all this gold, the king could hire someone to prevent a teeny-tiny trickster from just sauntering into the queen's bedroom. Then again, we learned last week about an entire island that couldn't figure out how to tell time until someone brought a rooster. So I suppose it isn't that far-fetched. Suddenly, remembering the deal she made a year ago, the queen is horrified that the miniature mannequin had come to collect his due. She offered him all of the riches in the kingdom to let her keep the baby, but the pint-sized pixie declined. No... Something that is living is dearer to me than all of the treasures in the world. What in the name? That is a direct quote from the text. Heck, the queen might have been more willing to give up her kid if he hadn't just called it something that is living. At this point, I'd just grab the nearest animal and wrap it in a blanket, hand it to the guy, and hope he buys that I'd somehow given birth to a crow. If being alive is the only stipulation he has for his reward, I can think of plenty of things that would work in the place of a royal child. Losing her calm, the queen begins to weep, fearful of losing her beloved child. Seeing her weep reminds the knee-high gnome of the good old days of straw spinning, and pitying the young queen, he decides to cut her a break. 
All right, all right, all right. Tell you what, Toots. You've got three days. If you can guess my name in that time period, I'll let you keep the kid. And with that, he left. So, over the course of the night and throughout the next day, the queen thought of all the names that she could, and she sent a messenger across the land to find out what other names existed. There's no evidence in the story of anyone seeing the queen interact with Rumpelstiltskin, so my guess is that they all just thought that she was trying to come up with a really good name for the new prince or princess. Well, the next day, the itty-bitty imp arrived, ready to allow the queen to guess as to what his name could be. She started with the names Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, the three supposed names of the kings who came to visit the baby Jesus. None of those were the name belonging to the rascally runt. She then listed off all of the names she could think of, which I would assume took a while. Let me just see how many names I can come up with just off the top of my head. Aaron, Albert, Jason, Joshua, Jeffrey, Caleb, Adam, Landon, Justin, Alex, William, Robert, Thomas, Michael, Ryan, Richard, Jeremy, Daniel, Jacob, Patrick, Gary, Harold, Lawrence, Lance, Benjamin, Sean, Stephen, Barry, Bertram, Kyle, Brandon, Carson, Clint, Blaine, Matthew, Mark, Lucas, John, Paul, Harvey, Howie, Hiram, Christopher, Edgar, Evan, Jose, Javier, Perry, Jerry, Drew, Kevin, Darren, Leonard, Andrew, Shane, Glenn, Daryl, Henry, Ronald, Kurt, Calvin, Frank, Randall, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Dwayne, Derek, Martin, Eugene, Murray, Ralph, Theodore, Alvin, Simon, Peter, Parker, Edward, Norman, Nelson, Nicholas, Travis, Jackson, Malachi, Jeremiah, David, Scott, Brett, Brad, Vance, Gilbert, Grayson, Caden, Terrence, Casey, Quincy, Oliver, Oscar, Timothy, Ned, Nathaniel, Raymond, Reed, Sheldon, George, Vincent, Joseph, Brian, Bronson, James, Skyler, Kyler, Stanley. Okay, I'll stop there. I'm sure I could keep going if I tried. And those are just the traditionally male names. I, I didn't even do nicknames, so the queen probably went on for a while. But to all the names, the itty-bitty imp just answered, That is not my name. Then he left, and the first day was over. For the second day, the queen had her servants go out and learn everyone's name in the village. Seems like that would have been the first step, but I'm not a queen, what would I know? After this thorough questioning of the citizens, the queen took note of the weirdest names among them. When the mannequin returned that evening, she peppered him with these. Perhaps your name is Short Ribs, or Sheepskanks, or Laceleg. But to everything he answered, That is not my name. Sorry, I know I'm cutting in a lot here, but we absolutely must address the fact that someone in the village is named Sheepskanks. I didn't make up the three names that were just listed. They came straight from the text. Someone in this story had parents who looked at their baby and went, Hey, you know what's a good name for this baby? Sheepskanks. Or heck, even if it's a nickname, how could anyone just be that abhorrently cruel? Here come old Sheepskanks looking sheepy and skanky as ever. Well... The evening ends, and the queen is beginning to lose all hope that she will ever find out her eensy-weensy enemy's name. However, on the morning of the third day, one of her messengers returned. Your Majesty, I don't know why you're being so picky with these baby names, but I couldn't find a single name that hasn't already been shared with you. On a completely unrelated and disconnected story, want to hear something super weird? While I was on the hunt for more names, I came to a high mountain at the end of a forest, and I saw a tiny little house. Next to the house, there was a fire, and then just dancing and hopping around the fire was a quite ridiculous little man. He kept hopping around, and he yelled, Today I bake, tomorrow I brew, the next I'll have the young queen's child. Glad I am that no one knew that Rumpelstiltskin I am styled. Now, the word style can also mean to name, so Rumpelstiltskin was so excited about the fact that he was going to win the contest, he hopped around, literally screaming the one thing that could make him lose the contest. 
Now, I'm not a tiny little troll man who lives in the woods and wanders around castles aimlessly looking for women to trick into giving me their future children, but I feel like even so, I'd have the sense to not do what Rumpelstiltskin just did. So, when the queen heard this, she was obviously flooded with relief. When the minuscule monster entered for the final time, he fully expected that he would be leaving with the queen's baby. Now, Mistress Queen, he asked, what is my name? The queen was coy with her answers, which I think was pretty gutsy. I probably would have just gone straight to the point. Your name is Rumpelstiltskin. Now get the heck out of my castle before I have you publicly executed, you little demon. No, the queen wanted to play a bit at first, so she pretended to be dumb. Is your name Conrad? No. Is your name Harry? No. Perhaps your name is Rumpelstiltskin? Rage gripped the wee little wackadoodle as he turned bright red. The devil told you that! The devil told you that! He cried, which leads me to assume that Rumpelstiltskin has some sort of strange relationship with the devil that puts them on first-name basis with each other. In his anger, Rumpy stamped his right foot so hard that it broke through the floor, and his whole leg plunged deep in the earth. Further complicating the matters, he attempted to extricate himself by grabbing his left leg and pulling as hard as he could. This did not work. In fact, it worsened things. He pulled so hard that our good buddy Rumpelstiltskin literally tore himself in half right up the middle. And that's where the story ends. I don't want to know who was on cleanup crew for that situation or how the queen explained her way out of it. Who's going to believe that a tiny little guy literally ripped himself in half? The same people who are willing to believe that the same little man has been secretly just perusing the castle all day and night waiting to con the queen out of her baby? Now, there are some disputes regarding certain minor details of the story. For example, in certain versions of the story, the miller's daughter asks for the help of the little man in the third time, but it isn't until after he's already done the job that he demands her firstborn as payment, and she never explicitly agrees to it. You're welcome to subscribe to this version if you'd like to see her in a bit better light. The story was also developed somewhat backwards. Most of the time, the original version is more violent than the newer ones, but in this case, the original version, apparently told to the Grimms, did not have Rumpelstiltskin tearing himself in half. In certain versions, he flies out of the window on a cooking ladle, which, by the way, is so much more interesting than just walking in and out of doors. Why couldn't he have entered that way every time? That would have given him a little more pizzazz, a bit more sparkle. Give him the old razzle-dazzle. In another version, he still stomps on the ground, but makes a chasm big enough that he falls all the way in and disappears, apparently falling all the way to hell. So, be careful around that. Let's do a little bit of digging and see what else we can learn about the tale of Rumpelstiltskin, huh? <laughs> yes, uh, it's time for some historical context. Now, how old would you think the story of Rumpelstiltskin is? Maybe a couple hundred? Perhaps a thousand? Sorry, uh, but the correct answer is not exactly known. There are estimates, however, that this type of story, known as the name of the helper, could be at least 4,000 years old. To give some perspective, this story in its earliest form apparently came about around the same time that the last woolly mammoths began to go extinct. Yep, it's also pretty likely that Stonehenge had just recently been completed around this time. Wow. Obviously, these early versions of Rumpelstiltskin would have differed from our current version. For example, milling as we know it didn't start to pop up in history until about 500 BC. But it's not really easy to put an age on the concept of names, and we can be certain that both women and babies were invented long before 2000 BC. So, the basic building blocks are all there. Now, because the story is so old, it was very likely widespread by the time the Grimm stumbled upon it. 
The University of Pittsburgh guesses that Wilhelm's wife, Henriette Dorothea, gave the brothers the tale, but it's also likely that they had heard the story before then. Additionally, the age of the story means there are loads of different versions of it, way too many to go through all of them. I'll touch on a couple of them. There's an English version called Tom Tit Tot, where a woman bakes five pies and instructs her daughter to set them out to soften. Instead of doing so, the daughter eats all five pies. Respect. When the mother learned this, she was upset. She set to spinning and began to sing a song about how her daughter ate all five of the pies she had baked. My daughter ha ate five, five pies today. My daughter half ate five, five pies today. Not the most creative writing, but okay. Writing a diss track on your own daughter is something I doubt happened often back then, so I'll give it a pass. It just so happened that as the woman sang, the king traveled down the street and heard her, though he couldn't make out the exact words of her song. He rode closer and asked the woman to repeat the words, curious about her song. Embarrassed about her gluttonous daughter, the woman modified her song a bit. My daughter hath spun five, five skeins today. My daughter hath spun five, five skeins today. For those of you who have no idea what this means, I will break it down, because I didn't know what it truly meant up until this point either. Unfortunately, it isn't quite an exact science, because I dug up several definitions of how much yarn is actually in a skein, and how long it takes to spin a full skein. The average, I found, was that a skein was about 200 yards long, and takes, today, between 4 and 5 hours to spin. Those aren't exact numbers, but I promise I did my best to figure it out. With that math, this would mean that the daughter had completed about 20 to 25 hours worth of work in that day, all before dinner time. Clearly, this amazed the king. Sure, she wasn't doing anything like spinning straw into gold, but this was still an impressive feat. Tell you what, the king said to the woman, I'm looking for a wife, and your daughter sounds like a good candidate. I'll cut you a deal. For 11 months out of the next year, she will live like a queen, eat what she likes, do what she wishes, and be showered with gifts. But for every day of the final month, she will need to spin five skeins or be put to death. Apparently with kings in these stories, the stakes are just all or nothing. Enamored by the idea of having her daughter married to the king, the woman agrees. She rationalizes that by the end of the year, the king will have forgotten about his spinning requirement. Good luck with that. So the daughter went with the king and became the queen. She had a lovely time as a royal for the first 11 months, but as the year drew nearer its end, she worried about the spinning marathon she would need to pull off. Distraught, she begins to cry, which is apparently the default way to attract tiny little monsters that are incredibly good with spinning wheels. After a bit of weeping, a little black creature with a long tail appeared, asking her what was wrong. After some bickering, she finally admitted that she had an impossible task ahead of her, and knew that she wouldn't be able to do it. The little monster offered to do the spinning for her each day of the month. The girl was suspicious of this, and asked what she would have to give the creature in return. With the flick of his tail, the creature proposed a bet. After each day of the month, the girl would have three chances to guess his name. If she could not accomplish this by the end of the month, the monster would take her away. Certain that she could guess the runt's name, given all that time, the queen agreed, and the monster disappeared. Finally, the time came for her to begin spinning her five skeins per day, and unfortunately, the king had not forgotten the deal. He locked the queen in a room filled with flax and some food, and commanded her to spin. No longer did he leave than the little black monster arrived, took the flax, and disappeared out the window. Nearing the end of the day, the creature reappeared and presented the queen with five skeins. This happened each day for the whole month. During this time, the queen guessed all of the names she could think of, but the creature was not named Bill, Ned, Mark, Nicodemus, Samuel, Methuselah, Solomon, Zebedee, or any of the other names she could guess. As the final day neared, the queen began to panic. However, 
Through the convenience that can only exist in a fairy tale plot, the night before, the final day of the month, the king happened to mention to his wife that he had seen something rather odd when hunting during the day. He happened upon a small pit, where he saw a tiny black monster with a long tail sitting at a spinning wheel and spinning remarkably quickly. As he did, the little creature sang, Nimmy nimmy not, my name's Tom Tit Tot. Again, just out there broadcasting your weakness to the world. What are these little goblin folk thinking? As you might guess, when the creature arrived that night after spinning five skeins, the queen feigned ignorance with her first two answers, but shocked the creature when her third response was, Nimmy nimmy not, your name's Tom Tit Tot. With that, Tom Tit Tot shrieked angrily and disappeared out of the window, never to bother her again. Not every version features a girl who is placed into trouble by her parents. Sometimes the girl does it herself. In the Cornish tale of Duffy and the Devil, Duffy herself brags of her talent in spinning, despite being described in the text as, quote, an idle slut she could neither knit nor spin. So, that's rude. Uh, but she did get herself into the mess, and managed to get herself out of it, similarly to the two queens in the other tales, by guessing the little devil's name, which in this case was Terry Top. Lastly, we'll hop over to Scotland for the slightly different tale of Whoopity Story. Uh, not to be confused with Whoopity Scoory Day, which is a Scottish holiday celebrating the approach of spring. Whoopity Story is instead the story of a lonely old woman. She'd lost her husband, and nobody kenned what happened to him. Our body said they were sorry for her, but nobody helped her. Wilkes a common case, sir, and she has nothing left but her cottage, a wee soaking lad bairn, and her pride and joy a soul. Now one morn the woman went out to feed her piggy and saw it was uncle. It was groaning and moaning, rolling on its back with its four wee trotters up in the air, ready to gee up the ghost. Trow, this was especially bad as it was do that piglets which would have given the wife a bit more money. This was a new stone to her good wife's heart. She sat down on the knocking stain with her bairn, and her knee and grat harder than she ever did for the loss of her end goodman. No, the courthouse of Kinterrumpet was built on a bray with a muckle firwood behind it, and oh wilk you'll hear mare afore lang. So the good wife, while she was dictating her in chances to look down on the bray, and what did she see but an old woman, almost like a lady, coming up the way. She was busket and green and all but a short white apron, a black velvet hood and a steeple crown beaver hat on her head. She had a lang walking stick as lang as herself in her hand, the sort of stuff that old men and women help it themselves with lang side. I sickly staff no stirs. Okay, sorry, I couldn't help but share a, that chunk in its original form. Uh, I'll give a quick translation. This uh, is a story of a woman who had lost her husband, and all she was left with was a little baby boy and a sow that was about to give birth to piglets. One morning, when she went out to feed the sow, she was horrified to find that it was sick and dying, and she grew upset and began to cry. Just at this time, she happened to see a fairy woman, dressed all in green and carrying a staff, coming up the hill near her home. Now, I don't speak French, and I'm not sure how many of you understand it, so I will continue our story in a more understandable version of English for the next part. Upon approaching, the fairy very rudely cut the woman off from greeting her. Listen, don't bother telling me what's wrong. I already know. Your husband left. All you have are a sow and a baby, and the sow's about to die. Your life sucks. Want me to cure your sow? What? You can cure my sow. That would be perfect, thank you. Okay, what will you give me? I'll give you anything you want. Please, just cure my sow. So... The green woman walks into the pen of the mother piggy and does some weird kind of hinky stuff to it. It apparently involves some sort of ointment or oil or something. There are differing accounts. After pouring the ointment in the sow's ear or rubbing it on her snout or both, the sow immediately stands up, completely healed, and runs happily to its trough to gobble up its breakfast. At this point, the good wife falls to the ground and attempts to kiss the feet of the green woman as a show of gratitude. 
but the fairy doesn't allow her to. Instead, she has to collect her pay. You'll no find me an unreasonable greedy body. I like I to do a good turn for a small reward. All I ask, and will have, is that lad bairn in your bosom. Translated, she's not greedy, she just wants the baby. No biggie. Obviously, the good wife is horrified by this, and begs and pleads the fairy to reconsider, or take something else. But the green woman is set on her prize. Through the wailing of the mother, however, the fairy lets it slip that by the laws of her folk, she cannot take the baby until three days have passed, and if the good wife can guess her name during that time, the fairy has no claim to the child. After the fairy leaves, the good wife is incredibly distraught, and spends the first three of the days in her home just holding the baby and weeping. On the second day, the woman decides to go for one last walk with her little boy. As she tries to enjoy her stroll through the forest, she hears the spinning of a wheel, and a little voice singing. Curious, she peeked into the thicket where the sound was coming from. To her surprise, it was the fairy woman, spinning flax at a wheel and singing a tune to herself. Little Ken's our good dame at home, that whoopity story is my name. You'd think that all the little baby-stealing and straw-spinning monsters in the world would talk to each other and remind their peers not to sing their name in the woods where anyone can hear it, but apparently not. Delighted, the good wife returns home with her little boy and waits until the next day. When the green woman arrives the next day, she very quickly demands the child. The good wife puts on another act. Oh, please don't take my baby. Take my sow instead. The fairy declines. What use do I have for a stupid sow? Well, then don't take my sow. Take me. Please take me and let my baby stay. No, you're old. What would I even do with you? You're practically useless. To this, the good wife frowns, but makes her coy response as planned. Oh, dearie, you're probably right. Why, I wouldn't even be worthy to tie the shoes of the great Whoopity Story. At the very mention of her name, Whoopity Story immediately begins to shriek angrily. She turns tail and flees down the hill, never to be seen again. And the good wife makes up a song on the spot and begins to sing. A goo and a gitty, my bonnie wee tyke, ye's no have your four oris, sin we given Nick a bane to pike, with his wheels and his whoopity stories. Now, I couldn't find what the heck four oris means, but the rest of her rhyme boasts that they'd beaten the devil and his minions, and now the kid was free to live his wonderful baby life. As I mentioned before, there are several other versions of this tale, but we don't really have the time to look into each of them much as I'd like to. I will, however, go through these names because they're hilarious. Of course, Germany has Rumpelstiltskin, uh, but they also have Nagendumer, Zergzerk, and Hoppetinken. Italy has Tarandando, Sweden has Titli Tur, uh, we've got Tom Tit Tot in England, Gwarwan the Throt in Wales, uh, and the Slavic regions sell their babies to Kinkak Martinko. Cornwall houses Terry Top, Klamushka is hanging out in Russia, and Iceland's got Gilletrit. Hungary has two monsters, Winter Kolbul and Pansy Mansy. Uh, Arabic folks fear Jordan. Svilidreta is pulling double shifts in Serbia and Croatia. Utsli Gutsli is Utsling and Gutsling in Israel, and Rido Kedido is harassing South America. Now, looking at all these stories, there are two things that one will wonder about. The first is why the little monsters were so easily defeated with their own names. I'll get to explaining that in a bit. The second thing, and this is something that's bothered me for a very long time, is this. What was Rumpy's plan with that baby? I really doubt that he just happened to be looking to adopt. There are easier ways. 
For the longest time, I was certain that Rumpelstiltskin was planning to eat the baby, which is an absolutely terrifying thing to believe, especially at the age when I first heard the tale. Yeah, uh, cannibalism of infants brings a whole new spin to this story. Uh, I think my impression came from the fact that our old buddy, Rumblebutt, was singing about his name while he danced around a cauldron and mentioned baking and brewing in his song. Luckily, there are other, more likely explanations than the one that haunted me as a child. In most mythologies involving fairies, kidnapping babies was a surprisingly common occurrence. The tale would go that one of the fey folk would come and steal a child in the night, leaving one of their own children as a replacement. These replacement kids were called changelings, and generally had sickly appearances and never really aged. They could be found out if you caught them dancing when you played music. Sometimes the fairies would take babies for their own reasons, and sometimes it was literally just for kicks and giggles. And sometimes it was to punish bad parenting. But what happened to the real child? Well, that's a tough question to answer. It's generally believed that the fairies would take a child to become their personal servant. Sometimes they really do want to adopt and raise a child as their own. Sometimes they want to introduce humans as potential breeding stock within their community. Gross, I know. Most of these are fairly innocuous, but there are also stories of fairies who need to sacrifice a child to hell every seven years, so don't get all forgiving of them. Now, about names. Dating back to even before ancient Egypt, people have believed, and still do, that names hold incredible power. In Egyptian mythology, the goddess Isis was able to trick the sun god Ra into revealing his true name to her. This gave Isis nearly complete control over Ra and allowed her to place her own son, Horus, on the throne. She did this with some shenanigans involving Ra's spit, but we won't worry about that right now. In several other myths throughout history, people avoid giving their names to dangerous beings. Odysseus told Polyphemus the Cyclops that his name was No Man. Polyphemus was an idiot and believed him. In The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins deftly avoids giving his name to the dragon Smog. Likely, he was worried the creature would hunt him down and destroy him, much like many of you likely want to hunt me down regarding my pronunciation of Smaug. I'm sorry, there are arguments for both ways, so I really just alternate every time. Even in less quote-unquote pagan forms, names are important. One of the Ten Commandments given to Moses in the Bible was, Thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain. Certain sects of Judaism refrained from speaking the name of God out of reverence, using other language to refer to him instead. In short, names have power. It is widely believed, in regards to fey and the fair folk, that you should never tell a fairy your name because of the power it will give them. Also, probably don't sing it in a weird song with an earshot of them. Now, the real nature of this power over you is hard to quantify. Perhaps your name will no longer be yours, forgotten by all who try to use it. Perhaps the fairy will be able to command you and take away your free will. As far as I'm aware, no one knows exactly. Uh, reach out to me if you've ever given your name to a fairy. I'd love to talk to you about it. This isn't just an ancient belief, either. I have an interesting story about the power of a name, involving my friend and roommate, whose name I won't share, because I don't want the fae to find out. Uh, on a certain night, this roommate had a date with a young lady that he had met on a dating app. Upon meeting her in person, my friend was quickly informed by the woman in question that she was a witch. Cool. Glad she was being upfront about it. Anyhow, my buddy took this in stride and continued their date, but it did get quite weird. Suffice to say, they wound up in some woods adjacent to a park. After chiding him for stepping on some grass, she advised him not to walk through circles, and eventually asked him what his middle name was. Confused, my roommate responded, Barnaby. That isn't actually his middle name, but wouldn't that be great if it was? Noise. At this point, his witch date corrected his behavior again, warning him never to give his full name to a witch, as it would give her power over him. 
Near the end of the date, she informed him that she had cast a love spell on him and that he would be hers forever. Well, as far as I'm aware, they've had no more dates since this encounter, so maybe it's just a really slow-release spell? Like, they'll get together sometime in their 40s? I don't know. So, names have some mysterious power attached to them. Best not to go giving them out to just anybody. You may notice, we never learn the name of the Miller's daughter or her child in the story of Rumpelstiltskin. Food for thought. Before we get to our moral of the story, I do have one last interesting tidbit. According to a couple of sites I found, two University of Texas researchers have developed a way to get gold out of certain plants. Straw to gold may not be as far-fetched as I originally thought. Yeah, apparently using some sort of solvent, Miguel Yacaman and Jorge Gardia Torreste have managed to coax tiny bits of gold out of alfalfa, wheat, and oats. Now, mind you, it won't give a whole room full of gold, only tiny little particles, but hey, that's something. It's not new information to the scientific community that plants can take in metals, but it is to me, so that's cool. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin might be out of a job if we can figure out how to take this further, because, uh, you know, uh, there's gold in them, that plants. So, my dear friends, what have we learned today? The moral of the story. I think the most important moral that we learn today is that people need to get their lying parents under control. Most people are pretty tolerant when their parents brag about them, and honestly, uh, it's, it's got to stop. No more kid bragging. Uh, we can never know when the My Kid is an Honor Student bumper stickers are going to turn into My Kid Can Spin Straw Into Gold. Then next thing you know, the FBI is showing up because they're worried that your kid's alchemical abilities are going to mess up the economy and flood the market. And then suddenly, your kid gets kidnapped, end up as a Chinese asset, and some little tiny dwarf man has them locked in an interrogation room shouting, What's my name? over and over again. So please don't lie. Let your kid's accomplishments speak for themselves. Oh, and also, stop telling fairies your name. You never know what they're going to do with it. Thank you for all of your support. And hey, feel free to share this podcast with your friends. Uh, you can leave a review on whatever platform you're using to listen. It'll be a real help to me. And you can also follow at Funklore Podcast on Twitter and Instagram for updates and possibly some sneak peeks for the upcoming episodes. Additionally, if you have requests for certain stories, uh, comments about the ones that I have covered, or you just want to say hi, uh, hit me up at FunklorePodcast at gmail.com. If you want me to read your email in an episode, let me know and tell me if I'm allowed to use your name. Have a great week out there, everyone, and just stay funky fresh, would ya? Funklore was created, written, and hosted by Justin Bauk, with special thanks to Joshua Andrus for creating the music beds and album art. Sources for this episode are listed in the episode description. Distributed by Anchor. You know Zerk Zerk, and Noggin Doomer, and Klamuska, and Terry Top, Hoppa Tinkin, and Ootsly Gootsly, and Pansy Mancy, and Gwarwina Throt. But do you recall the most famous troll man of all? Rumpy the baby stealing mannequin had some very shiny straw, and if you ever saw it, you would drop your mouth in awe. Okay, sorry, I'm done. I promise.